our sermon text this morning is, uh, we're at the end of Mark chapter 5. We're going to be looking at Mark 5 verses 35 to 43. And I'll ask out of respect for the word of God that you stand for the reading of the scriptures this morning. Mark 5 verses 35 to 43. Give ear to the reading of God's holy word today. Mark writes, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion. People weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, Little girl, I say to you, Arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was twelve years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. The same as the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of our God. Amen. Well, if you've been with us over the past few weeks, you'll know that we're in a section of Mark's gospel where what Mark is doing is demonstrating for us, uh, for, for us the Lord Jesus Christ's almighty power and willingness to save sinners. If, there's, if we learn nothing else from Mark chapter 4 and 5, those are the two things, among other things. But those are the main two things that should be impressed upon our hearts and minds from those chapters, Christ's almighty power to save. Remember, he stilled the storm with a word, cast a, a legion of demons out of a man, and his willingness to save. And how has he demonstrated that? We've already said a few things. He, he calmed a violent storm. In chapter 4, verses 35 to 41, he calmed a violent demoniac. In chapter 5, verses 1 to 20, he healed a woman from a 12-year-long disease of blood in the previous verses that we looked at last time. Uh, And we also saw, it might seem odd to our ears, uh, but that his power was shown to be so vast and so overwhelming that the characteristic reaction of those who witnessed it was fear. Fear and amazement. And we see the same thing in our text again, don't we? They were overcome with amazement or they were astonished with a great astonishment is 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 a literal way of rendering the phrase in our text. And at the end of, of chapter 4 in verse 41, the disciples kind of utter an awestruck question. And I think that question is one that summarizes a lot of what goes on in these chapters. And this is what they say. I like I, I liked the way the King James puts it in this verse. What manner of man is this? What manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? That's not normal, to say the least, right? What manner of man indeed? That, 
That is the question, as we read that text and as we read it again this morning, that's the very question I believe that you and I ought to be asking ourselves when we read these chapters. What kind of person is this? What kind of, as they call him, teacher? What kind of teacher does this stuff? That's not normal. The second thing these chapters highlight for you and for me this morning is not just Christ's power to save, but his willingness to save sinners. That's another theme that's woven all throughout these two chapters. William Hendrickson puts it this way. He says, what is especially important is the fact that in the entire chapter, chapter 5, not only the power, but also the pity of Christ is revealed. His compassionate heart is laid bare. The chief lesson, therefore, is this. Give your heart to the wonderful Savior. So Christ's power to save and his pity or his compassion are the things that, that are being hammered home in these, in these two chapters, including our text this morning. And what's the takeaway from that? Not just curiosity, not just, hey, that's nice to know. It's, hey, come to the Savior if you haven't already. Believe in his power to save. Believe in his willingness, his pity or compassion to save. So take note both of Christ's power and his pity or compassion here in our text. If you are not yet a believer in Jesus Christ and are so yet still in your sins, why? Why will you still perish? What holds you back from coming to Christ by faith? Maybe, maybe you don't doubt his power to save. Maybe you've been coming to church long enough that you accept the fact that he's the almighty son of God. You can pass the quiz. If we were handed out a quiz this morning and said, is Jesus God? You'd say, check the box. Yes, true. I know he's God. Perhaps you don't doubt his power to save. Perhaps you even acknowledge the truth of his death and resurrection on the third day. You know that happened. You accept that that happened. But do you still doubt that he's willing to save you? Do you still doubt his willingness to accept you if you come to him by faith? Do you still somehow in the back of your mind fear that somehow he will still turn you away if you come to him? That he will accept others, but he couldn't possibly accept you and save you. Well, I think if that's the case, read these verses and these chapters again. Notice in these chapters, including our own in this text, Jesus never once turns away anyone who comes to him by faith. You won't find it. It doesn't happen. People turn away from him. He doesn't turn anyone away who comes to him by faith. Not one. Not a demoniac in the first 20 verses of Mark 5. If he's going to turn anyone away, wouldn't it have been him? And yet he doesn't do that. He doesn't turn away an anonymous woman suffering from a blood disease for 12 years. He doesn't turn away Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue. He doesn't even turn, this is from a different text, but towards the end of the Gospel of Luke, he doesn't even turn away the thief on the cross. He doesn't turn away anyone. Instead, what does he do to the thief on the cross, the man who has nothing to offer? He can't promise he's going to turn over a new leaf. He can't promise a life of service and, and profitability for the name of Christ. And yet, what does Christ promise him anyway? Paradise. Just by looking to him by faith. Well, our sermon this morning, we're going to have three main points from our text. Each one of those points is going to highlight a transition found in the text. 
uh, transition of sorts. The first transition being one of a transition from one daughter to another daughter. The second from weeping to laughter. And the third from death to life. So our first transition, our first point is the transition from one daughter to another. In the previous text that we looked at last time, the Lord Jesus showed his almighty power over sickness. Over a 12-year-long, remember the, the word could be translated scourge or whip. This, whatever this was, it was awfully painful. She suffered a great deal. For 12 years she suffered, verse 25 says, under a, a discharge of blood, an issue of blood. And after healing her in verse 34, what did Jesus say to her? He said, daughter. You know, Jesus could have just healed her. And said, okay, you're good to go. Go in peace. Leave me alone. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Literally, it's daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. He didn't rebuke her for touching his garments. He didn't turn around and snap at her. He said, daughter, daughter, and go in peace. And when he calls her daughter, it's a form of the same word that Jairus used back in verse 23 to describe his daughter as his little daughter who was being at the point of death. Well, here we see in our text that Jesus didn't forget about the one daughter to heal the other one. He didn't have to pick and choose who he'd save. He's able to save both. Now, to Jairus, that healing of that woman, as, as quick as it might have been, was, was something of an interruption, to say the least, wasn't it? You know, basically, Jairus is dialing 911. He's going to Jesus and saying, you've got to come quick. You know, what's he saying? It's, 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 a, it's faith mixed with unbelief, just like we do. He believed Jesus could heal her if he got there fast enough. If he got there before she died. If she died, well, Jairus wasn't so sure, was he? And we can forgive him for that, for that thought. So Jesus healing that woman must have seemed like something of... A great interruption. You know, he was the father of a 12-year-old girl. The text, our text tells us how old she was. 12-year-old girl who was at the point of death. The text in Greek is she had her end. It was practically in her hands. And he had come to Jesus Christ on his hands and knees, begging Jesus to come lay hands on her that she might be made well and live. Now, Jesus had been on his way when that woman touched him in the crowd and when he stopped to deal with, with her, that unnamed woman whose faith had made her well. And notice, how long was she suffering from that blood disorder? That little girl's whole lifespan, both 12 years. There's difference and there's similarity there. Well, here in our text, Mark turns our attention back to Jairus and his daughter. It's like there was a, you know, when you watch TV shows, sometimes it'll pan away from one thing to go to another. Well, now it's kind of panning back to Jairus and his daughter. And we read in verse 35 something that's gut-wrenching. Mark says, While he, Jesus, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? That word trouble can be translated vex. Or, or you know, it's, it's what, you know, you're, leave him alone now. He's had enough. He's had a long day. There's no use. Why bother anymore? It was too late. Jesus had not got there before she died. 
Think about this. The bad news of his little daughter's death came while the good news of Christ's words of grace and salvation were still ringing in the ears of that woman, that daughter whom he had saved. You can imagine what Jairus must have thought. You know, while Jesus is telling the woman, go in peace, the people from Jairus' house are basically telling him to hold his. Hold your peace. Why bother the teacher with this any longer? What was the Lord Jesus' reaction to their bad news? Good news. In verses 36 to 37, Mark says, But overhearing what they said, you know, some, some commentators say that the word for overhearing could actually be translated ignoring. Either way, the, the result is still the same. Overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. Jesus heard what they said. And who did he reply to? Not to them. That's what we would have done. If we were in Jesus' shoes, which we're not, thankfully, for us and for everyone else in the world, you know, they would have said, too late, she's dead, don't, bother, don't vex the teacher anymore. If we were Jesus, we would have said, hey, you, listen here. He ignores them completely. He doesn't let them follow him. He talks to Jairus directly. He turned his attention to the one person there who was looking to him in faith. And what did he say? Jesus told Jairus not to be afraid of what they had told him, but rather to believe. In other words, don't believe them, believe me. Trust me. Ignore what they have to say. The bearers of bad tidings in our text, now they they referred to Jesus in a respectful manner, didn't they? What did they call him? They called him the same thing that the disciples called him in the boat during the storm. Teacher, the teacher. It sounds, you know, not just a teacher, the teacher. He's, He's a great teacher, but, you know, he can only do so much. You can't expect, you can only expect so much even from him. But this was lip service, wasn't it? They believed that his power to save had limits. To them, Jesus was a teacher, but he wasn't much more than that. But Jesus' power doesn't stop at death's door. That same teacher who stopped the forces of a storm by speaking is about to show that he alone is mighty to save over the power of death in the grave as well. And that brings us to our second transition in the text, and that's the one from weeping to laughter. In verse 38, Mark kind of sets the scene for us at Jairus' house. It says, they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. Notice, he keeps calling him that. He keeps bringing that back up. I'm not sure why that is, but he, he doesn't just call him Jairus. He keeps bringing back up that he was the ruler of the synagogue. And yet, what happened? It says, they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion. People weeping and wailing loudly. You can only imagine what this must have looked like. This wasn't a calm scene. You know, the word for commotion there is the same Greek word that Luke uses in Acts 20, verse 1, to describe a riot in the city of Ephesus. This was a commotion, is probably putting it mildly, of what was happening here. Now, this was quite a scene. Mark describes the people there as weeping and wailing loudly. 
not just crying, but wailing loudly. You can only imagine what that must have felt like to Jairus coming home to that scene. And yet Jesus told him not to fear. Don't let that scene dissuade you. Don't fear, just believe. But Jairus is going to have to believe in spite of that commotion, in spite of everything his ears and eyes were telling him, Jesus said to believe. Now what was Jesus' response to that crowd, that crowd of mourners? In verse 39, Mark says, And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. The child is not dead, but sleeping. What are we to make of that statement? Is Jesus being dishonest? It's easy to think that, right? Is, is he kind of playing tricks here? Hey, she's just sleeping. She's not, she's not dead. You know, on the surface, it, we might be tempted to think so, but we shouldn't jump to such sinful conclusions. The Lord Jesus Christ, as you probably know, he often says things in the Gospels that could be taken more than one way, doesn't he? He says a lot of things like that. And if they can be taken more than one way, they're often open, those things are, to misunderstanding or misinterpretation. In chapter 4, Jesus taught in parables. As we saw uh, back then, you know, those parables in some ways had a dual function. They were supposed to teach, but they were also intended to conceal things from other people. It's kind of a strange thing to think, but those parables can be taken in more than one way. In John chapter 3, you might know that chapter famously, maybe the most famous verse in the Bible is found there, John 3.16. But a little while before John 3.16, you have Jesus dealing with Nicodemus, a very important man, right? The teacher of Israel, so-called. And in John 3, verses 3 to 4, Jesus says to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is what? Born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And we often, I think, don't give him much credit. We think, boy, he sure was dim for the teacher of Israel. He wasn't the sharpest, the sharpest bulb on the Christmas tree. Or am I mixing my metaphors? Um, you know, we should give Nicodemus a little more credit than that, shouldn't we? He's, he's saying, I know you don't mean that, but I don't know what you mean. What could you possibly be saying? Because I know it is not this. But he didn't know what he was saying, did he? Earlier in John's Gospel, in John 2, verses 19, uh, verse 19, what did Jesus tell the Jews? He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. What did the unbelieving Jews think he was saying? Their reaction tells us. They thought he was talking about the building that they said in verse 20 took 46 years to build. They're saying, this, this building has been alive longer than you. You're going you're to tear it down and raise it back up in three days? What? But what, is, what does John tell us? Verse 21, he was speaking about the temple of his body. His body. He's referring to the resurrection on the third day. Way back in John chapter 2. Sinclair Ferguson says something I found very helpful. He points out that faith and unbelief understand Jesus' words in very different ways. Faith and unbelief take the same statement and understand it awfully, in awfully different ways very often. You could say that in a sense, only a believer in Christ 
truly understands and rightly understands Jesus' words. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14, the Apostle Paul writes this, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Spiritually meaning by the power of the Holy Spirit teaching you. So the unbeliever in some sense, the natural person, the person that's dead in their sins, they don't what? They don't accept the things of God and they don't understand the things of God. Those two things are related. They, they can read words on a page. They can listen to a sermon. They're not, that, they're not dense in that sense. They know English if it's in English. They can, they can understand the grammar and the vocabulary. They can pass a quiz. But deep down, do they accept it? No. And if you don't accept it, you really don't understand it. And you can't understand it on your own apart from the work of the Spirit. In fact, Jesus in our text uses the word sleep much the same way the Apostle Paul would later do in his, in his epistles, doesn't he? 1 Corinthians 15.51, Paul writes, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all what? Sleep. But we shall all be changed. He's talking about death but he likens it to sleep. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-14, Paul writes, But we do not want you to be uninformed or ignorant, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have or who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Now, the Lord Jesus and Paul, they're not denying the sad reality of death by using euphemisms. We do that. We use euphemisms all the time to make things not sound as bad as they are. Jesus isn't talking euphemistically here. He's not saying, hey, it's not so bad. You know, he's saying something much more impressive than that. He and Paul both in those texts, what they're doing is they're upholding that great bedrock of Christianity, the truth of the resurrection. That's what he was talking about when he said that girl was, was sleeping and not dead. In other words, the, the Bible doesn't teach soul sleep. Jesus here is not saying, hey, when you die, it's like a long nap. Your soul kind of lays down and goes to sleep. When you wake up in heaven, it's been millions of years or whatever it's been. It's not what he's saying. He's saying the power of the resurrection is so unbelievable, it's so powerful that it, it so undoes the reality of death itself that death's effects on our bodies can now be compared to sleep. It does no harm to you as a believer. It does as much harm to you as a believer as a nap does, as going to sleep does. Christ is going to raise everyone from the dead and raise his people to life. What was the response of those mourners, those people who were wailing Wailing and weeping at the top of their lungs. How did they respond to what Jesus said? It's, it's kind of remarkable, the change in their, their comportment. They went from weeping and wailing loudly to laughing at Jesus. Not funny, ha-ha. Mocking, laughing at Jesus. The King James puts it, I think, memorably. It says, they laughed him to scorn. It's not, it's not the word for laughing at a joke. It's a word for jeering. It's a word that implies contempt. They were mocking him is what they were doing. 
it kind of makes you, it, to me, it makes you question the, genuine, the genuineness of their, of their weeping. There, there are many who say that in those days there were professional mourners that would go, you know, maybe if you had enough money like Jairus probably did, that you would hire people to mourn, to make a fuss. That, maybe that was the case, but either way, we see their weeping for her wasn't real. They went from weeping and wailing and making a big commotion out of things to laughing Jesus to scorn. Why did they laugh? They didn't believe. This guy must be off his rocker. We know what dead is. We've seen dead. That's dead. She's gone. And what did Jesus say? She's she's just sleeping. And he's going to go wake her up. That brings us to our third and final point, the, the transition from death to life. What was Jesus' response to that mocking and jeering of that crowd of so-called mourners? In verses 40 to 43, Mark writes, But he put them all outside. You want to mock? Do it out there. You don't get to see what I'm about to do. He put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, and he went in where where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately, Mark's favorite word, immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. Can you imagine, you know... Sometimes we, we joke about certain people who are very bad at keeping secrets. I won't mention names, but there's some of my family who are uh, a little younger. Um, <clears throat> you know, some people aren't so good at keeping, at keeping secrets. Imagine having to keep that secret. People are going to ask. You know, I don't know what he was allowed to say. The text doesn't say. Uh, but I'm sure what they said was one thing. Well, Jesus got here. Now she's fine. He sent that crowd out and allowed only the girl's parents and those with him to go into that room where she was. Only those who believed were allowed to see. And isn't that the way it is throughout Scripture? The world wants to see that they might believe. Only those who believe get to see. They took that girl by the hand and said to her, Talitha Kumi, which is Aramaic. It's It's a similar language to Hebrew. And he says to her, basically, little girl, I say to you, arise. Mark gives us a little translation lesson here into what that means. So Jesus spoke to a dead girl. Normal people don't do that, but Jesus did. He also spoke to a storm in the earlier chapter. And just like that storm, the dead girl heard and obeyed. Jesus called the dead to life, just like that. And he would do the same thing in John chapter 11 to his friend Lazarus, whom he loved. The one whom you loved has died, he's told, isn't it? What did he tell his disciples in John 11:11? Our friend Lazarus has what? Fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. What did Jesus do? Verse 43 of John 11, it tells us that he cried out with a loud voice and said, Lazarus, come out. In verse 44, one of the strangest scenes maybe in the whole scripture, the man who had died came out, 
Jesus said, come out. What did Lazarus do? He did exactly what he was told. Came out. His hands and feet were bound with linen strips and his face wrapped in a cloth. He was still wrapped up in his burial clothes. And he came walking out of that tomb. Only the Lord Jesus Christ has the almighty power over death and the grave. You know, think about the previous verses and chapters. Stilling a storm. That gets our attention. That's impressive. If there was a video of that on YouTube, our jaws would hit the table. You know, a hurricane is happening and Jesus says, all right, knock it off already. We'd be scared too, just like the disciples were. You know, stilling a storm, casting out a legion of demons. Again, very impressive. If we had seen it, if we had been there, we'd never get over it. Healing the sick. Not just somebody with a head cold, a 12-year-long suffering from blood disease. Those are examples of great supernatural power. But without the power to conquer death in the grave, none of those things means anything. Without the resurrection, you can still all the storms you want. We are still without hope. Impressive, impressive miracles without power over the grave do us no good. And so Jesus kind of gives us the capper here at the end of John chapter 5. Jesus shows us that he has power over death and the grave. He showed us by raising that little girl from the dead whose 12 years of life matched those 12 years of that woman's suffering before her. He showed us in John 11 by raising Lazarus from the dead. And he showed us more importantly, most importantly, in his own resurrection from the dead on the third day. Without that, there's no reason to trust in him. Jesus can say, don't fear, just believe all he wants. Without the resurrection, it wouldn't matter. But the fact that he raised from the dead was raised on the third day, gives us reason to do just what he says. Do not fear, only believe. In closing, I'd like to point us to two, two statements made in John chapter 6 that I think illustrate what we see in our text as well. And I'm going to use these connected statements to kind of summarize what Mark is telling us in this passage that we're looking at here in our text. In John 6 Verse 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, what? I will never cast out. I will by no means cast out. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. In other words, he's assuring us of the depths of his willingness to save sinners. His willingness to save sinners. He turns away how many? Not one. He turns away no one who comes to him by faith. And all those who come to faith, how do they do so in the first place? They're given to Jesus by his Father. Later on in the same passage, verse 44 of John 6, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one. If you come to Christ, you didn't come on your own. None of us would have come on our own. But what's the very next thing he says? And I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. His power to save. 
is there in verse 44. None of us come on our own. If you came to Christ, uh, what's the saying? You didn't build that. You didn't do that on your own. You wouldn't have done that on your own. None of us are able to come to Christ on our own. We would all be in that mocking crowd of hopeless mourners denying the resurrection. Without, without the power of God's Spirit working in us, drawing us to faith in Christ, if we were in that story, we wouldn't have been in the room. None of us would have been. We'd have been in the crowd that went from mourning to mocking. But when Jesus Christ, but when God draws us to faith in His Son by His Spirit working through His Word, He not only convinces you and I of the truth of the resurrection, but what else does He do? He brings us from death to life. He takes those who were dead in sin and makes them alive together in Christ. He convinces us of the truth of the resurrection. He brings us from death to life in Christ. And He assures each one of us in Christ that our risen Savior will one day raise us up again on the last day. Behold Christ's omnipotent power to save sinners. And as Christ said, do not fear, only believe. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we, we always find ourselves saying, Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. Give us grace to take those words to heart that, that he said to Jairus to do not fear, only believe. We thank you that you, your Lord Jesus Christ, your son, has the power over death and the grave. That he conquered death and the grave and conquered hell itself on the cross and on the third day when you raised him from the tomb. We thank you that because he lives, we too will live if we are in Christ by faith. And we pray that if anyone does not yet know you here, that you might open their eyes even today. Bring them from death to life, that they might have the true and lasting hope of life and the resurrection and the life everlasting in Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.